Welcome to this podcast from the Bay Church. We hope you're blessed by the message. To find out more, please visit our website at www.the-bay-church.org.uk. Okay, if I need to go. No. Okay. Huh. Um, no. <laughs> Hmm. Um, I know you all want to look at that wonderful picture there, but um, can we have the last picture that we had with that rainbow? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That, That person looking at the rainbow they're not looking at that rainbow because um, when you see a rainbow, it's unique to you because it's it's because of the position you are in relation to the sun and the moisture in the air. There's an angle there. There's a refraction. So that person is looking at a different rainbow. Did you know that? I reckon that person is looking at a rainbow that's probably slightly higher than that one. So this rainbow belongs to the person who took the photo. There's something in that image about uniqueness. Um, When Rachel was speaking and introducing this song, and thank you, where's Rachel? Thank you for that. Give me a hand. Thank you for that, Rachel. I think you've, 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 in your obedience, you've birthed something tonight. Uh, And already uh, there's growth starting. Uh, there's growth starting. There's people stepping out, stepping into their into their destiny, into their song. Uh, so thank you, Rachel. And Rachel mentioned this: your sound, your song. I don't believe all of us um, necessarily have something that would be heard. Our song isn't necessarily something that will be heard. It could be something seen. It could be something written. It could be something uh, entirely new and different. But your sound, your song, sorry, uh, I think Ray Hughes used the word song, and I think that's quite helpful. Um, Your song, your narrative is entirely unique to you. I'll tell you why it's unique to you, because God created you entirely unique. And he wouldn't have created you unique if he didn't want you to have a unique song. I believe that. And I want to, I want to uh, call out today your, your unique artistry. Your unique artistry. We are all creative people. We are all artists. We are all certainly artistic. And I want to call out that unique artistry it might not happen tonight but I want to call it out because we've all got it okay now you can put that fantastic photo (laughs) Um, I've I've done some very deliberate things Um, one of the things that I did was um, promote 
<laughs> my mini-series. How vain, how arrogant I hear you thinking. But, but actually, there's something in that about um, not, um, not being apologetic and shy. I've got something, I've got something to bring tonight and at the end of the month, part two, I've got something for this church and I'm not going to be shy about it. I'm not going to be apologetic. Um, so, hence the poster. <laughs> hence the, uh, the entrance fees. Did, did you know about that? No. Hmm. Okay. Um, but I'm also, I'm also sensitive to uh, the uniqueness of tonight. It's different to this morning. I, um, it's on my heart to, to talk about artists and the role of artists in society, in our community, in our culture, um, in our church. Because I, I think it's a really important thing, particularly for, the, for times such as these. Um, and I think there's, a, there's, a, there's an urgency to my, to my message as well. I think that will come out more in, in part two. Um, tonight I want to talk about artistry and um, being artistic. And I want to kind of give some definitions to that, uh, which I think will be, will be helpful. First of all, let me talk about failure. I'm really knowledgeable about failure. So um, something occurred to me when I went to the gym uh, about a month ago. I went for an introductory induction session with a personal trainer. Um, yeah, I won't do that again. But um, it kind of makes you feel old <laughs> and really unfit when you have a personal trainer because they're usually young and really fit. Um, so that wasn't particularly helpful. And he said things like, for your age, you know, you, that was really good for your age. <laughs> Young whippersnapper. Um, he did do some stuff with me that was really helpful. One thing he, he taught me was that when, you, when you're doing things on weights machines, he, he talked to me about failure and he talked to me about negativity. So he said, I'm going to take you through the failure phase, and I'm going to take you through the negativity phase. I, I, um, I asked if he could maybe take me through the, the success phase and the positivity phase, but he, he didn't seem to be uh, into that. So when he said he was going to take me through the failure phase, what he meant was he wanted me to, to do, let's say, to do some, uh, some things on the, you can tell I'm a real expert, you know, <laughs> things on the weights machines. Um, until I, I started to fail and I couldn't do it anymore, but I was to keep going. Um, because normally, psychologically, when you're doing something uh, at the gym, particularly on weights machines, you, you usually have a number of, of exercises in your head. With me, it's 10. I don't know why. You know, I think I'll do 10, then I might do another 10. So when you get to eight and nine, you're psychologically, you're ready to stop, aren't you? And you can just about manage 10. If that number was 15, you could probably just about manage 15. So his philosophy was to do your 10 or whatever and then keep going until you absolutely fail. Wasn't a very uh, attractive proposition for me, but I'd, I went with it. And he explained that when you do that, it really, really like rips your muscles. It, it, it it's like tears your muscles 
and when they repair, you, um, they repair better and stronger um, compared to if you just kind of stop naturally when you reach your limit or what you've set as your limit. He explained it much better than me. What I got from that was that if you, if you avoid failure, you, you, you don't come back stronger. That's my interpretation of what he was saying. And I think there's a kind of a life lesson there. So, um, so I took that on board, and, and it, it taught me something about failure. And it made me reflect on how often in life we, we set up our lives to avoid failure, to avoid failing, and perhaps we don't get stronger or as strong as we could be. And I'm talking about strength in a very general sense, you know. Um, perhaps we don't grow as much as we could because we're avoiding failure. I'm not suggesting we go out of this door and, and immediately look for opportunities to fail. It, it's not quite that, <laughs> that that I want to bring to you. However, I think if you avoid failure all your life, it really narrows your life experience. It really narrows your growth, your journey. Uh, the other thing I know about failure is that if you fear failure and avoid failure, you're, it's almost impossible for you to forgive failure in others or in yourself. And we spend a lot of, of time in our lives um, either at the receiving end of unforgiveness because of our failures or being judgmental and unforgiving of others who have failed. If you avoid and fear failure, you're almost it's almost impossible to forgive failure. And this can be crippling. This can be crippling to the, unf the unforgiving person, but also the person that is, has failed and is not. You know, it's crippling for everybody. Um, there's something about um, how we set up community, how we set up society um, that can be very restrictive in, in lots of ways. And it reminded me of, um, I just uh, you could put a diagram up, it reminded me of this. I was having a conversation with Simon, um, who, who goes to India regularly. He was talking about the caste system in India. Is that familiar to some of you? Um, I've always seen that as being a, a really awful thing, and it is, actually. Um, to put it simply, you're, you're born into a caste or, or class, if you like, and you, you don't get out of that, particularly if you're the bottom, the lowest of the low, the untouchables. Um, that's, that's you for life. You're born into it, and your children will be in the same class, the same caste, and there's nothing you can do about it. It, it, it is uh, integral to the Indian culture, and it has been for thousands of years. There are actually about a quarter of a million subdivisions of these castes. So it's not just these. There are really intricate and subtle subdivisions. So imagine that, quarter of a million different gradings. I mean, how can you ever get out of that? It's, it's so complex uh, that nobody really understands it, but it's so embedded, ingrained in their culture that there's nothing anyone can do about it. I think that's awful. Whether you're at the top or the bottom, I think that's awful. Um, but 
I also think, and I'm starting to see more and more, that it's not unique to Indian culture. I think we have a caste system in our culture. I think we have a class system in our culture that, that has the same crippling effect in many ways. Let me give you an example. What you say about yourself, often when you're a child, based on, um, based on comparison, based on a, a perceived hierarchy, what you say about yourself can often become true, self-fulfilling. Um, I noticed this uh, the years I was a, a primary teacher. A lot of children I taught had already decided by the age of nine, and it, there's something significant about the age of nine, had already decided by the age of nine where they, where they ranked in the class or in the school in, in a few kind of disciplines. One of them is, is all, all things physical. Who's the best footballer? Who's the worst footballer? Who's the best at fighting? Who's the worst at fighting? Um, in academic subjects, who's the, who's the best at maths? Who's the worst at maths? And everything in between. I, I would have children say to me regularly, well, I'm the fourth best at art. I'm the fifth best at maths. It's like, how do you know? You know, when was this competition that I didn't know about? But they somehow instinctively know. And, and um, they've got a, a, a really, real sensitivity and a real kind of um, intrinsic uh, so, sort of caste system, if you like, it, within the, the, the culture of a school. And I, I reckon it probably happened when you were at school as well. You had a sense of who was the best at stuff and who was the worst at stuff, you know? I want to put to you this evening that that is really, really damaging. It's really, really damaging because we start to believe it, whether or not it's true, and it becomes true. It's like superstition. You know, if I start to believe horoscopes, they actually become true in my life because I start to behave in a different way or I start to only see the things that are suggested in, in the deception of, a horoscope you know if I if I read a description of let's say I was an Aries is that a star sign Aries let's go with that let's say I was an Aries and I read that Aries Arians are are um, are good-natured are, are kind to strangers if I read that and I thought well actually I'm quite kind to strangers so that's true that's true about me so you know I start to believe other stuff in this description and, and, and before long, I start to behave in a, in, in a different way. I start to become more good-natured to strangers because I'm believing that that's kind of what I'm born with, um, and it becomes more true. That doesn't sound particularly negative. You know, if I became kinder to strangers because I, I, I've read a description of my star sign, but actually, in, in, in terms of uh, the big picture, that is really, really damaging because I'm basing my, my existence on something that is a deception. And I think that this happens, this permeates our culture, it permeates our society of believing something that isn't entirely true, but because you believe it and you start to behave differently, it becomes more true. I started to, to break what I saw as being curses o over children. 
um, by, by turning that around, turning around their perception. The child that says, I, I've never been good at maths, or I'm just like my mum, you know, she, she's not good at maths either, or, you know, nobody is good at art in my family. I started to turn that around because I, I refused to believe it. So one of my things was when I started a new class, and this is about the time of year I would start to think this way, I would, I would uh, and, and certainly with art and maths uh, and PE, those three things, children have a real perception of how good they are, and it starts to become true. So with those three things, I would say to my children, you are all sporty, you are all athletes, you just maybe need to find the thing that you enjoy uh, and become good at. You know, um, you are all artists in my class. You might not feel it yet, but this year, um, you're all gonna discover how amazing you are at, at certain ways of uh, expressing yourself in art. Um, you are all mathematicians. Uh, children started to, to believe it, not straight away. They just humored me at first, I think. But they started to believe it, and it started to make a difference. They started to enjoy maths, whereas in the past they hadn't enjoyed maths because they'd already decided they couldn't do maths. And when they started to enjoy it, they spent more time on it, and they were more intrigued by it, they were more prepared to work hard at it, and it had a noticeable difference. My maths results in my class um, became embarrassingly high. In fact, I was told one year by the head to, to kind of suppress them a bit because I was showing the other teachers up. <laughs> and they were certainly questioned by other teachers, you know, that the, the, the implication was that I was somehow inflating them. Actually, I didn't care two hoots about the maths uh, test results. That wasn't my intention. My intention was something much more long-lasting than whether children get 98% in a test. It was the same with art interestingly, and the number of children in my class that, that became just extraordinary in terms of how they expressed themselves through pain, through, through music, through, through drama, through dance. I even did dance. And, and through, you know, the, the more sort of classic artistic expressions, drawing, uh, painting, sculpt. It was incredible because they believed that they were artists. I wasn't conning them, I was speaking a, a deep truth to them. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? The fact that they believed it and started to behave differently, there's no deception there, it's the truth. And I want to say to you, you are all artists. You are all intelligent, because that's how God made you. You are all mathematicians, you are all athletic. You may have spent some years not particularly specializing in anything athletic. It doesn't mean to say that you're not athletic. Do you see what I mean? And it's that, it's that investment of time that can make the difference in your life, isn't it? You see, I know this because people are, have often spoken over me that I'm gifted in, in art. I don't believe that. I used to believe it because people used to say it to me. They also used to say that I made them sick because I was so good at art. It's nice, isn't it? You make me sick. The amount of times people spoke that over me. Um, I knew I wasn't born good at art. I just, I just had an interest from an early age. It also helped that we didn't have a TV as I grew up. 
and that I was part of a big family. Um, so I spent a lot of time reading and a lot of time drawing, a lot of time drawing, like every day, you know. And I would love getting new sketch pads, and I used to look everywhere for paper. My dad sometimes brought home, you know, that old-fashioned 1980s computer paper with the holes along the side. I used to love getting reams of that. And I just used to draw and draw and draw because I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed getting better at it. And because I enjoy getting better at it, guess what? I got better at it. It's, it's no mystery. It's no secret. I spent a lot of time doing it. So now I'm enjoying being good at art because of the investment of time. If you made that investment of time in, in any f kind of area and you enjoyed doing it, at a, a particularly from an early age, you would get better and better at that thing, wouldn't you? Okay? That's kind of a, 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 a life truth. Um, I want to say to you today that it's not too late. It's not too late to discover your, your, your inner artistry. It's not too late to, to, to discover what you're good at. It's not too late to discover what you want to invest a bit more time in. I'm, I'm having a bit of a renaissance in, in my life, and I'm 47 on Tuesday, um, in terms of I'm, I'm starting to discover uh, creativity that I've kind of I've, I've contained for years and years and I'm starting to kind of let that unravel and it's fantastic it's also scary and I'm failing all the time I'm do I'm doing some like some stuff that just um, you know I scrap it and start again I was talking to Max that painting there that I did were, was a, a massive failure at first because the canvas didn't stretch properly can you see how it's all rippled if I had had time, I would have ripped that off and started again. I remember saying to Eunuch that I wasn't happy with it at all. And, I, you know, I, I came to this festival, I think it was Worship in the Park, just kind of feeling a bit sorry for myself, actually. Oh, I've got these canvases, but look, it's, it's all rippled. It's just not going to work. Uh, and Max was saying to me before that he, he just loves how, how clever I was <laughs> um, because I've, I've managed to make it look like three-dimensional. Can you see how the drips have fallen on the ripples? Yeah, that was planned, Max. I, I, totally, uh, I totally meant to do it. That's a mistake. You know, that's a failure. Isn't that glorious? <laughs> that, that that failure has made that a stronger expression. That's what I'm talking about tonight. <laughs> so let's move beyond the mindset that says, I am fourth best at this or I'm not as good as him I'm not as good as her or I'm I'll never be good at that let's move out of that mindset and it is a mindset let's move into to a growth mindset what's that got to do with the, the church I think it's got everything to do with our church everything to do with our church one of my main um, callings, perhaps you could say, ministries, perhaps you could say, or, or it's not in my job description, but I, I've made it in my job description, is to break curses. In my work, I'm a, I'm a school advisor. I spend a lot of time talking to head teachers, teachers, and pupils. And I find myself speaking positives over people, speaking blessings over people where, where they've been crippled by, by the opposite. And I find myself undoing a lot of damage that's been done in people's lives, including children, including your children, our children. 
Um, I've made that my job description. Isn't that fantastic? It, it's an honor to do that, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting really good at it. I'm getting really good at it because I enjoy it and I, and I do it a lot. <laughs> um, do you know what top trump cards are? Yes? Yeah? I thought you would, Henrik. If you don't know, top trump cards are, it's, it's kind of like a, I guess it's like a maths thing. You, you get a category. Uh, when I was young, there weren't many choices. I had uh, sports cars or something. And, and you get, on each card, there's a picture of a car, in this case. And underneath, there's some data about the car with a score. So it might be top speed, 180 miles an hour. Um, what else would it be? 0 to 60, you know, 4.2 seconds. And for each car, it's slightly different. And some cars have higher speeds. Other cars have higher something else, you know, fuel consumption or something. And, and so the, it becomes a game. So if I read out my top speed and then Jez read, reads his top speed, if my top speed's higher than Jez's, I win both cards. That's how you play it, okay? <laughs> I think there's something about that, that that we put on ourselves. I think there's a belief that God has made us a bit like a top trump card in terms of he's given us a certain level of ability in, in certain areas. And, and, and my, you know, my top speed might be lower than Jez's, and Jez's strength might be slightly higher than mine, but that's how God has made us, because he's made us all different. We're all unique. Uniqueness is not the same as a score on a top trump card. Okay, I want to break that, because I believe God has made us all outstanding. He's made us all um, brilliant. He's made us all high-scoring. And, and he's also, in his love and grace, he's given us the freedom to kind of work our, ways, our, our way through life and find the things that we enjoy and make our own choices and decide ourselves what we're going to excel at. Do you see the difference? It's not set in stone what you will be good at and what you won't be good at. That's kind of your choice. Isn't that amazing that God has given us that freedom and choice to say, Whenever we want, I want to spend a bit more time getting better at this. Or I, I, I want to never do that again in my life. <laughs> like me with a personal trainer. But that's fantastic. You see, that's not set in stone. It's not written on God's pack of top trump cards. You know, Richard Brown, top speed, 62 meters an hour or whatever. <laughs> so I want to break that off because I think that's, that's something that we... Well, I've, I'm picking up anyway, and I've certainly bought into that mentality that, that we're all made differently, therefore we're all better at things and, and worse at things than other people, and that's how we're born. I'm, more and more I'm starting to see the deception of that and actually how that can, that, that can um, be very, very uh, restrictive of, of how we op, uh, kind of go about our daily lives. We're all made brilliant. And God allows you the freedom and choice to, to kind of decide how you work that out in your life and, and how, kind of how far you want to go in a particular field or direction. That's amazing. So when I say I, I want to call out the artistry in all of you, you know, that can be entirely different for all of us. 
because that's the choices we make, and there isn't a wrong and a right choice, you know. It's not that Amy has to choose songwriting, you know, uh, Rachel has to choose expressive mime and dance. It's not like that. Maybe they will, and maybe they won't. <laughs> I really hope they do, though. <laughs> Is, is, that, is that resonating with you? Is that making sense? Okay. How are we doing? I'm aware that this is, this is a part one of a two-part series, okay? And, and it would only be fair to, to leave today to kind of change the movie reel halfway through the movie at the same time as I did this morning. Otherwise, it's going to get really confusing when I do part two, starting from different starting points. Um, what I want to do now is, is talk about what I mean when I say artists and artistry. Okay, There's something special about uh, people who have spent a lot of time pursuing being artistic and, and kind of become people I would call artists. And I think we can kind of learn from that. So. First of all, I want to say artists are environmentally motivated, not self-motivated. What I mean is, I'll, I'll give an example kind of fr fr from myself. Um, when, I, when I produce something that I would call you know, art, art or artistic, it, it's because of my experience of... of everything around me, it's because of where, where I'm looking, it's because of where I'm kind of feeding, it's because of um, what I'm doing in my, in my private time, it's because of what I'm doing, you know, it's all of that that feeds into an expression. It's not, um, it's not about me. Uh, I compare that to when I go and do work in high schools, you often see kind of wonderful art displays in high schools, don't you? But quite often, the art is very limited because it's all about, it's all, it comes from 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds with not much life experience. So it's quite narrow, quite limited what, what they can express. And quite often, there's still a, a, a touch of the sort of egocentric person in, in those expressions, in those art forms, you know. Um, and that's to be expected because, you know, they're young kids. If that's still the case when, when those kids are in their 30s and 40s, I think there's a problem there. I, I, I don't think you could call those people artists because they're sti it's still self-motivated and not environmentally motivated. The, the biggest environmental motivation for me is being in God's presence and, and, and drinking in what, what God is saying over me and what God is, you know, that, that's my biggest environmental influence and, and stimulation. Without that, artistically speaking, we're actually not that interesting. You know, if it was just about us. One of my big environmental motivators uh, is, is the world that I live in, um, in terms of kind of what's happening politically, what's happening in terms of social justice in the world. That really fires me up. Another thing that really fires me up is, is what's happening to our, our, our physical environment, just, just the damage that we're doing to, to our planet. 
And I've, I've even... I've even become aware of a kind of a culture of, of um, Christians separating their faith and their Christianity from, from the world because they don't feel that, that they're still of the world, if you know what I mean. So the, the world is not my home type attitude. The world is our home. You know, we talk about heaven on earth, yet we treat the earth like it's hell. Here's one example. Plastic. This really fires me up. You know how many of these are produced every minute? A million. A million plastic bottles every minute. How much of that, what percentage of that is recycled? 50%. The other half is still, it goes into landfills, it finds its way into oceans. If that happens every minute, that's 500,000 bottles every minute are just left on our planet. This plastic doesn't go anywhere. It stays as plastic. That really fires me up. Look at the choice I make. Isn't that amazing? I got that from a tap. Remember taps? <laughs> I picked these off the floor this morning those six bottles, a couple of them are th still three-quarters full. Like, what a waste. That, it, I'm, I'm, it's quite a serious point. It, it really, uh, like I say, fires me up. I think we can do better than that. I really do. And it's delicious. It's from a pipe in the kitchen. So what am I doing about it as an artist? Well, you know, I know that as an artist, being environmentally motivated does not necessarily mean that I can just get everyone else to be the same as me. That's not really what being an artist is about. So I think very carefully about how I communicate that. I've been saving that message up for today, for example. <laughs> when, I, when I paint at the moment, I'm, I'm making a conscious choice to use things that will go back into the earth. All of that paint is clay, for example. So, uh, you know, there's, there's something uh, in, in that that's a, an environmentally motivated message. It's from uh, David and Laura's garden. I'm getting a lot, of, uh, a lot of use out of that clay. I've still got loads of it. Um, the point is, when I went to the, the lov lovely exhibition park and any paint that got splashed on the ground, it's, well, it's just clay. But I think it's saying something else. It's saying something about what we do to the environment. Hmm. A million bottles a minute, though. Only 5% um, gets recycled and made into bottles again. So 5% of, of bottles um, is kind of recycled. So the 95% is entirely new plastic. And big companies like Coca-Cola and Nestle are choosing not to use recycled plastic because it doesn't look quite as good. This is the consumer uh, mentality that, that we all buy into, actually, you know. And, and I think consumers blame producers and producers blame consumers. Well, you know, people buy it, so we'll produce it. Well, you know, if supermarkets would stop selling it, I wouldn't buy you know. At some point, we've all got to hold our hands up and say, look, I'm just going to make a choice to be a bit less comfortable and have a bit less convenient a lifestyle. 
oh, I'm really preaching now, aren't I? <laughs> Artists are restless wanderers, questioners, explorers. And that's wonder with an O, as in, I wonder. The greatest thing, one of the greatest things, I would always encourage in my kids in my classroom and my kids at home to get them to wonder, you know, to wonder about something and then do something about it. It's one of my favorite words. But this makes you kind of restless because you're always wondering, you're always thinking about something else, the next thing, the next thing. Here's something that I'm wondering about at the moment. Let me just share it with you. Um, I've learned quite recently that when a, when a lot of plants grow, to ensure that every single leaf or petal gets sunlight, they turn, when it grows, it turns ready for the next leaf to grow or the next petal. And it turns exactly the same number of degrees. For example, if a, if a plant grew a leaf and then the leaf turned 180 degrees and then another leaf grew and then it turned 180 degrees, it would overlap itself, wouldn't it? And it wouldn't get sunlight. Look at how many of those leaves or whatever they are, are you can see. That's because it turns 222.5 degrees every single time. 222.5 degrees every single time to ensure that it never, ever overlaps itself. It's called an irrational number. Isn't that amazing? I think it is. But it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder how many plants are designed like that. You know, it makes me wonder um, kind of a, a bit about God's intention and purpose when he created plants. And I'm just marveling at, at the, the thought that's gone into that. Isn't that incredible? You know, if you were to count those spirals, it would be a number that fits in the Fibonacci sequence. And the, 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 that's when you add two numbers together to get the next number in the sequence. So zero add one is one, so it's one. One add one is two, etc. cetera. Two, uh, yeah, one add two is three. Two add three is five. And the ratio between the two numbers in the sequence is the same as the ratio between 222.5 degrees and 360 degrees. It's the same. And it means that they never kind of overlap each other. So I'm just sharing what I'm wondering at the moment. <laughs> I, I, potentially, I could go off on one at this point. So I just think it's amazing that we, that we can marvel and wonder about God's creation, which is infinitely complex and we'll never really understand it but we can start to use things that we've created like maths to start to kind of unpick it and science hmm. love it anyway move on Richard so I'm going to finish to go back to this thing of failure artists are fearless of failure and I want to encourage you First of all, to see yourself as an artist or potentially an artist in terms of God has created you to be artistic, to be expressive, to be environmentally motivated and then communicate something from that. You know, to hear what God's saying and then communicate that. Prophetic. That's, that's um, artists are prophets because they hear what's being said 
and then they, they choose a way to communicate that. Do you see what I mean? I'm going to talk more about uh, the prophetic in part two. But there's a real link there. Being fearless of failure is, is really important. I said this morning, one of the worst things, just, just hear me right here, one of the worst things you can say to your children is be careful. That sounds kind of counterintuitive and, and, and a bit wrong, but just, just hear me out here. Often when parents say to children, be careful, what they really mean is, I don't trust you to, to manage by yourself, or there's probably something bad going to happen to you. So, you know, it's, it's fear. It's motivated by fear and, and mistrust. Um, and when the child hears, be careful, that they're much more likely. For example, a child riding a, a bike down a street close to the curb, if, if they start thinking about the curb, what happens? They drive into the curb, you know, and, and fall off the bike. It's a bit like that. So, oh, I must be careful, I must be careful, I must be careful. It actually makes you more fearful and potentially more likely to get into, into trouble. It's, it's, it's to do with the fear of failure. Have you ever met somebody that is so uh, crippled by fear of failure that they don't really do anything in, in their life? You know, you can become housebound, can't you, with fear of failure? And I think there's something in the artist that that we can learn from because they've pushed through that. They fail all the time. They're quite happy with trial and error. They're quite happy to reflect on what went wrong and then do something slightly different. What James said last week about, um, you know, going through difficult times and then looking back and saying, I wouldn't have had it any other way. I would do the same again because of, of what I've learned and how much stronger I've become. That's an amazing word, an amazing word. And I want to kind of, I want to second that. I want to, to kind of stand with James in that and, 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 and really support that. There's something about being fearless of failure. If, you're, if, you're, if you start to shed the, the crippling effects of, of fear of failure, uh, who knows what discoveries y you will make in your life? Who knows what you will end up exploring? You know, who knows what exciting times are ahead for you? Who knows what your, your destiny will be if you shed the fear of failure? I want to leave you with that tonight. Um, and I want to talk about uh, resonance. You see, there's, there's something uh, kind of, of of God's intention and purpose in, in what I've said. I believe that. I believe that God has put this on my heart, and I've kind of made choices about how I communicate that to you. Uh, and I believe that there's a resonance that is, is, is created when that happens. Uh, you, you might feel that resonance kind of inside you. Sometimes we say in your heart. You might kind of come into agreement with something I've said. You might be challenged by something I've said. Uh, I just want to encourage you to respond in some way. Um, that could be just an acknowledgement of, yeah, you know, that, that really spoke to me. But it could also be uh, a response that we, we could perhaps come around you and, and stand with you and, and, and pray with you as well. Um, is that okay? Okay. Um, I feel I've said enough. And I also feel I should give the microphone to my wonderful brother, Alan. Um, 
who will uh, perhaps facilitate that. Okay. 